Divine Soul Music. This is a song where the cry is quite straightforward and quite simple. A cry to the Lord to rise up and take vengeance upon the enemies of the Lord's people. I, I put this psalm here in our, in our series as we've been considering the sovereignty of, of God and, and prayed about this a little bit in the pastoral prayer as well. We see God's sovereignty, and one of the things that challenges our trust in, our faith in that sovereignty, is when opposition arises. When the enemies seem to be victorious, that's a challenge to our trust in, our faith in the sovereignty of God. And so this psalm is a kind of a balm to our soul for that and a reminder of some powerful and precious truths. So Psalm 94 is before us. Let me read it. This is the very word of the living God. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. So ends the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. Again, may he write it upon our hearts as we come before it this morning. Let me pray for us as we come before the word of God. O God, our Father, we do come before your word this morning. Having heard it, asking that you would bless this time, bless to our understanding your word this morning. 
We ask that you would fulfill your own promise that as your word goes out, it does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes everything that you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, Father, pour out your spirit upon us to open our eyes and ears to see and hear the things that you would have for us this morning, making your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As always, Father, we ask these things in the precious, wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Difficult psalm, difficult words that I just read. Not too different from Psalm 35 that we looked at earlier this year. A psalm where David himself calls upon God to fight his enemies for him. When we went through that psalm, we talked about how vengeance belongs to God, and we cannot fit, forget that truth this morning. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You can find that sentiment in Romans 12, verse 19, or Hebrews 10, verse 30, Deuteronomy 32, 35. So Psalm 35 is a very interesting psalm where David asks for the Lord's help against his enemies. He prays for his enemies. He prays about his enemies. It's a psalm where David defends his own innocence in regard to his enemies, how he has done good things for them, how he's prayed for them and been kind to them. He asks God to deliver him from them. He asks God to punish his enemies for their sin and promises to thank God for the deliverance to come. Psalm 35 is a a great psalm. It's great to study, great to look back on, remember, so that we can learn, like David, very personally, how to react to and deal with our enemies that rise up. Rather than seeking revenge ourselves, rather than seeking to be God's avenger of evil, we allow him to take vengeance. So here we have Psalm 94 before us this morning. One of you requested this wonderful psalm. Another psalm dealing with this topic of vengeance. And note that God is called at the beginning of the psalm, the God of vengeance. And that sounds hard to our modern ears, but it has something to do with how we understand the word vengeance. But it's a psalm that looks to the Lord for vengeance against the wicked who persecute God's people. Remember, again, vengeance is to be taken by the Lord rather than vengeance by us as individuals. And that's the difference, really. Revenge is a personal thing. You got me, I'm going to get you back. As a comedian from Texas once said, we have a law down in Texas. You kill us, we're going to kill you back. And that's funny, but that's revenge. Vengeance is, vengeance properly speaking, and and in its oldest, most profound dictionary definition, is reserved for the legal authorities. Vengeance belongs to the king, to the governor, to the judge. Vengeance is taken specifically by those who have the authority to do so to punish evildoers. So vengeance is not revenge. We can't hear the word revenge when we hear the word vengeance. Vengeance is justice meted out by those who have the authority to do so to punish 
wickedness, evildoers. Psalm 35, the perspective is personal. David's enemies. Here in Psalm 94, the perspective is broader. All of God's people, but also among them, the individual member of God's people, as we'll see. Psalm 94 also contains one of those statements. We've seen these from time to time as we've gone through the Psalms. One of those statements that if you stop and think about it, you, you ought to be shocked. What's being said here? Is this really true? We're going to get to there. Uh, towards the end of the psalm. It's a fairly technical psalm. I don't want to go into the technical aspects of it, but last week we looked at Psalm 119, which is an acrostic, the various letters of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning the lines of each successive stanza. There's one technical analyst who looks at Psalm 94 and sees it also as acrostic. There's no following of the Hebrew alphabet here, but there's a structure there related to syllables and the accents of the words and also 22 verses with a prologue at the end verse 23 that seems to suggest this psalm was crafted very deliberately and very carefully to say what it says and to say it the way it does so this is not so much the emotional cry of david looking for god to save him from his enemies but someone sat down and wrote this psalm very deliberately to teach us about and and to help us to pray for the Lord to rise up and take legal, authoritative vengeance. Different outlines among different commentators. I'm going to stick to a very simple one this morning. I want to look at verses 1 to 7 as a lament, a lament for God's people as a whole. Verses 16 to 22, with 23 as the epilogue, is an individual lament. You'll notice that it changed from the, the perspective changes from the people, God's people, to my problems, my issue. And in the middle of that, which is kind of in some ways the focus of the psalm, there is a group of verses 8 to 15 that are basically a collection of wisdom sayings, some addressed to or discussing the wicked, 8 to 11, and some addressed to and discussing the righteous in verses 12 to 15. So I just want to work through those in order uh, this morning as we go through the psalm before us. So we'll start with the lament, the, the lament for God's people in the first seven verses, where there's a call that rises from God's people to rise up and take vengeance against the wicked evildoers who persecute God's people. And that persecution is very broadly described. It goes from arrogant, boasting words in verse 4. The idea that the wicked rejoice in their wickedness, especially against God's people. They boast about it. They're happy about it. They're proud of it. But then that persecution described in verse 5 as crushing. They crush your people. They afflict your heritage. Words that should bring to mind the the idea of a severe persecution, not just irritation, but severe, crushing persecution. We get an idea of what that might entail then in verse 6. They kill the widow. They kill the sojourner. They murder the fatherless, orphans. Their wickedness extends to the weakest of the weak. Those who have no land, 
those who have little or no standing in society, little or no strength to defend themselves. These people are so wicked. They don't go after the strong. They go after the weakest of the weak. Target them as their victims, these easy targets. These are wicked. These are evil people. Certainly brings to mind some of the violent acts that we've seen around the world and even in our own country in recent times. Going after easy targets, children in the school, people at a workplace, there for a party, people even in a nightclub, easy targets. Verse 7, again they boast, claiming that God doesn't see what's going on. He doesn't perceive this violence against his very own people. Of course, what they're claiming there is the God of Israel is not very much of a God. He's weak. He can't do anything about it. Well, this is about God's people in the Old Testament. We see persecution today, don't we? Up to and including murder. The news is full of stories, this morning included. From around the world, Christians being killed for their faith. The Middle East, in Africa, and those places probably more than anywhere, but elsewhere around the world as well. The story is full of persecution. Churches destroyed in places like China. Christians persecuted in once Christian Europe. The rather less severe persecution we even experience here in the United States. Property destroyed, confiscated, people tortured, wicked things done because people named the name of Christ. We see laws passed that are contrary to the Bible. Christians whose conscience can't follow those laws persecuted for standing up for their faith, fined, jailed, ridiculed, losing their jobs, whatever it might be. Two things to think about here just as we consider this persecution. One is, I think we have to be aware of this stuff. I, we hear it all the time. Oh, I don't watch the news. It's so negative. I get it. It's, it's depressing. But it's coming to a point where this affects our people, our body. And we should be aware of what's happening to our body. If your foot has a, has a gash in it, you don't ignore it because it's, I don't like bad news. You, you pay attention and you take care of it. I think we ought to start paying attention to what's going on around us. You know, whether it's the news or, or availing yourself of a newsletter from uh, agencies, Christian agencies that, that track persecution around the world, Voice of the Martyrs or others, I think this is something we need to be aware of. So that the second thing I think we need to do is, is to be ready to pray. We need to be in, in fervent prayer for what's going on in the body of Christ and to the body of Christ. And to pray for God to act, because that's what this psalmist does. The psalmist doesn't just note what's going on, but he opens the psalm with a prayer to God. Shine forth, God, of vengeance, in verse 1. Rise up, judge of the earth. Repay the proud for what they deserve. And then that cry that reminds us of the cry in Revelation. The martyrs under the throne of God himself. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Rise up and do something, Lord. This is a prayer that God is telling us to lift up to him. 
We have the right to do that. We have the responsibility as well. Be in fervent prayer for your brothers and sisters, wherever they might be, who are suffering persecution for their faith. This, these are verses that recognize. You might see Lord there in small capital letters. This is the covenant God again, Yahweh. And he's called the God of vengeance, and he's called the judge of the earth. Again, vengeance belongs to the one who has the authority to execute justice. We're not calling upon God to destroy the wicked indiscriminately. We're calling upon God to do what he does, judge, judge rightly, and punish those who do wickedness. Again, God is the one to take vengeance, not us. A very powerful opening to this psalm, and troubling for many people, because they don't like to see God as being vengeful or revengeful. But it's not revenge. This is justice. Remember, this is God as judge of the earth, as covenant Lord, king, executing justice. And justice is always good. Justice is always right. Well, there's a wisdom section in here that that interrupts the, the laments, if you will, from verses 8 to 15. Most see 8 to 11 as relating only to the wicked, and 12 to 15 is relating only to the righteous. I, I tend to look at it similarly, but a little bit different. Verses 8 to 11, I think, are about the wicked, addressed to the wicked, but there are lessons in those verses even for the righteous. Similarly, 12 to 15 are addressed to or about the righteous, but lessons for the wicked as well. And I want to look at those in turn. So 8 to 11 addresses the wicked and is a response to verse 7. In verse 7, the wicked say that the Lord doesn't see. He He doesn't perceive what's going on. And so verse 8 responds, Understand, dull people, fools, when are you going to be wise? And, and ask these wonderful rhetorical questions that, that at the same time mock, but also teach the wicked. He who made ears, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, he who made eyes, does he not see? Doesn't the one who made these things do them as well? In fact, how could God make eyes if he didn't know what vision was and have the ability to see himself? How could he make ears to hear if he didn't have the same capacity himself? Here the psalmist is pointing to the creator of all things. He made you, he knows you, he hears, he sees. This is a warning. It's a mocking warning, but it's a warning nonetheless. Continues in verse 10. He disciplines the nations. And he's, the psalmist here is calling to mind the things that God has done in the past. It's a reminder. You nations, you saw what happened to Egypt. You saw what happened to the Philistines. You saw what happened when Israel went into the promised land and conquered the wicked nations that were sitting there. This is a God who does rebuke the nations. He also teaches man knowledge, and because he teaches man knowledge, he knows their thoughts. And those thoughts are just a breath, here and gone in a moment. So here's God 
the creator, the ruler, the judge, the teacher, the wise one. Nothing escapes his vision, his knowledge. He understands man better than we understand ourselves, and he knows that we're nothing compared to him. Just a breath, temporary, we're frail, we're gone in a moment. And if all this is true, then the wicked will not prosper for very long, and their persecution cannot last forever. This is a warning to the wicked. They should stand on notice that their time is coming. The only question, back to verse 3, how long? Again, a lesson for us in these verses for the righteous as well. Sometimes we're tempted, again, when persecution arises. Where is God? What's he doing? Why isn't he doing anything about it? We also need to remember that the God who made our eyes sees what's going on, sees what's happening to us, sees what's happening to you. He hears what's going on. Don't forget the Lord is watching over you as well. How long will it last? We don't know. But we're a breath to God. What seems like a long time to us is very short for Him. So 12 to 15, wisdom for the righteous, God's people, begins with the declaration that it's a blessing to be disciplined by the Lord our God. A blessing to be taught out of his law. The righteous are blessed. We're disciplined by the Lord. We're taught by him. And discipline here isn't so much punishment for doing wrong as instruction in the bounds of what is right and wrong and the wise choices between right and wrong and how to live properly according to God's word, according to his teaching. This kind of teaching, this kind of discipline is therefore a blessing to the righteous who follow God. In fact, it says it gives rest. In the midst of days of trouble, it gives us rest. Not when a pit is dug for the wicked, it says in 13, but until. While we're waiting for that pit to be dug for the wicked, while we're waiting, how long, O Lord, being disciplined by God and being taught by Him gives us rest. That's an interesting thought. And then a reminder that the Lord does not forsake his people. He does not abandon those who are his own. And in fact, his justice will return to the righteous. They will see it and be glad. The upright in heart follow his justice. So the word to God's people is, do not despair. Learn from the Lord. Follow him. Receive his discipline. Follow his justice. This is a life of blessing, even in the midst of great trial and persecution. But again, there's a lesson there for the wicked as well. That blessing is available to the wicked if they will turn from their wickedness to following God and his law and his word. There's an invitation here, an implied invitation to life and to blessing. Kind of an Old Testament shadow of the gospel call. Come. Repent and believe. The wicked deserve justice. They deserve God's vengeance. But if they will turn, they also will receive blessing. 
So the righteous need a reminder that God is watching, verses 8 to 11, even in the midst of persecution, so also the wicked need a reminder of God's blessing to those who are his. What that meant in the Old Testament was one thing. What it means today is repenting of sin and turning away from it. Seeking forgiveness from God, accepting the work of Jesus for salvation. The payment for sin. The exchange of righteousness, as we saw from 2 Corinthians 5.21. can't be bought. It can't be earned. Just receive it and rest upon it by faith. Rest, it says in verse 13. Jesus is our rest. And this is a powerful truth for those who face persecution from wicked men. Well, then it turns to individual lament, starting in verse 16. It's the people in the first few verses, now it's me. Me and you, God, again, in the... the, uh, ensuing verses, 16 to 22 in particular. So the psalmist asks, Who rises up for me? Who stands up for me against evildoers? And the answer comes quickly in the psalm. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. In other words, the psalmist is remembering the Lord has already been his help. And if the Lord hadn't come, this land of silence has this idea, this Conception of despair. Curled up in a ball. In silent, utter despair. I would have been there if the Lord had not been my help. I thought my foot was slipping. I thought I was in trouble. But your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. There's a a powerful personal relationship going on here in these verses in the psalm. I did this, and you did this for me. I thought this, and you did this for me. There's a a powerful relationship between the psalmist and God himself. Again, kind of a reminder of Psalm 119. The law isn't just an abstract thing. It's your law that I love, says the psalmist over and over again in Psalm 119. Here again, I felt I was slipping. I felt I was here, but you you, uh, in your steadfast love saved me. 19 is a wonderful little verse. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When I'm sad, you cheer me up. (laughs) How does the Lord cheer you up? I think in many manifest ways. The friends, the family that we have around us that pour love into us. Love God, love your neighbor. If you are loved by a Christian brother or sister, you are experiencing a little bit of cheer from the Lord. We receive it from his word. We receive it as we reflect upon his works, his attributes, his character. We see it in our acts. Every every one of us here in this room has at least one act of God that we can look back on and cheer us up. He saved us. He saved us from our sin. He called us out of darkness into light. From death to life. If that doesn't cheer up your soul, ooh, we might need to have a talk. But he's done other things for you as well. We've all trod some very difficult paths in our lives, and we can look back and see the hand of God 
working for us. Remember what God has done for you. Let him cheer your soul in the midst of the cares of life. The cares are going to be there. We don't dismiss them. But in the midst of the cares, we have things we can cling to that nevertheless bring cheer to our soul. Verse 20 has a rhetorical question. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who make injustice the law of the land? Notice what's going on here. Those who frame injustice by statute. (laughs) Wicked rulers make wicked laws. Evil rulers make evil laws. Are they allied with God? Of course not. That's the point of that verse. And then to me, what is one one of the more stunning statements that we've come across in the Psalms for a while, in verses 21 and 22. The wicked, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. They're killing again. They're killing innocent people. By statute is the implication as it follows from verse 20. By statute, by law, by wicked laws, they condemn They use their laws to condemn the innocent to death. Well, that's depressing until you see verse 22. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. Now, think about this. What is a stronghold? What is a refuge? We think of those as protecting us, keeping us safe. I'm behind these massive walls of protection. Well, if that's true, how am I dead? If that's true, how how can wicked people rise up and kill me? This is one of those places in the Psalms where we've got to stop. What's going on here? What is God saying? How can this be true? Well, here's one of those places in the Old Testament where I think those old rabbis began to see a little bit of a hint of the teaching of resurrection. Because how can the Lord be my stronghold and my rock of refuge if I'm dead? Except that he makes me alive. Even though they kill me, yet will I serve you. We must obey God rather than men. And Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's a different perspective. That's an otherworldly perspective. Nobody likes persecution. Who would? Who should? And so the psalm gives us permission to lament the persecution that rises up against God's people. But again, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, it's our privilege to be counted worthy to suffer with Christ who suffered for us. The psalm is a reminder that God's people are blessed in Him no matter what's going on around us. We're held up in His steadfast love. No one can snatch us from His hands. And we can be cheerful even in the face of persecution, even death. Probably time to read, to dust off those books and read those old stories about the martyrs and their stories. The martyrs who sang as they went to their death, full of joy and praise to God. How can that be except they know the truth of this psalm? Even in death, the Lord is my stronghold. 
and my God is the rock of my refuge. They know where they're going. They're going to Christ. They're going home. Well, there's a little bit of an epilogue in this psalm in verse 23. God will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. God will wipe them out. I think this verse anticipates that final judgment, the end, the last day, when God will finally, permanently punish those who are wicked, the rebels against his law, his word, his justice, his righteousness, those who persecute his people, those who reject him and his son. This is a day that for us, for believers, is full of hope and joy. Finally, the how long is answered when God brings back on them their iniquity and wipes them out for their wickedness. But for those who do not believe, here's the warning. (laughs) The day is now. Repent and believe and live and have blessing and do this while there's still time. Or punishment is coming and it's not going to be pretty. Time to understand, dullest of the people. Time for fools to be wise. God sees. God hears. Who will rise up for you? God will. In fact, God has. In the sun, Christ rose. And that's no small thing. Having lived and died for us, saving us from the punishment that is to come. So be glad, give thanks. Though the cares of your heart may be many, nevertheless you can be of good cheer. In the Lord your God, because the Lord your God loves you and loves you with a steadfast, unfailing love. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your justice. We give you thanks as well for your mercy. Every single one of us was under the judgment of this psalm, except for the saving work of Christ on our behalf, that you called us out because you were rich in mercy toward us and because you loved us with a great love. We were not rescued by our own cleverness, our own devices, our own schemes, We were rescued when we were dead. And we thank you for that. We pray that you would be merciful. That you would extend mercy to thousands upon thousands. That you would call your people to yourself in repentance and faith, turning to Jesus Christ as Savior. But for those who don't, Lord, we we do wonder, we admit, we wonder, how long, how long is this going to continue? But we do look forward to the day when your enemies will be crushed and you will execute judgment, just judgment, upon them. Keep us and protect us, watch over us, help us to be of good cheer until that day arrives. We ask it in Christ's wonderful and holy and precious name. Amen.